This is Philosophy Bites with me, David Edmonds. And me, Nigel Warburton. Philosophy Bites is unfunded. Please help us to keep it going by subscribing or donating at www.philosophybites.com or you can become a patron at Patreon. Imagine somebody told you a whale pole vaulted over the Empire State Building. You've probably never heard that sentence before. So how did you understand it? Joshua Green, a Harvard psychologist and philosopher, is fascinated by this sort of question. Joshua Green, welcome to Philosophy Bites. Thanks, great to be here. The topic we're talking about today is the construction of thought. That sounds a complicated subject. What do we mean by that? Well, we have this ability that we take for granted, but that really is quite remarkable, which is that we can take concepts and put them together on the fly to create and understand new thoughts. So if I say to you, yesterday the world's tallest woman was serenaded by 30 pink elephants, you immediately understand what I just said. Even though you've never heard anybody say that before, you can take all of those concepts, the concept of woman, the concept of tall, of pink, of serenading, of 30, and put them all together and not just put them together as a bag of mixed up concepts, but as a very specific idea where it's the elephants that are doing the singing instead of the woman, despite what you might have guessed if you had to guess based on what you know about the world. I can see that that's an odd sentence and I'm not used to hearing about elephants serenading tall women, but why is it so problematic? Well, in general, we don't know how it's done. We hear and understand things and formulate ideas all the time, and we take this idea for granted. But it's hard to see how neurons would be able to do this. So neurons, the cells that make up your brain, are very good at doing certain things. First, they're very good at forming associations. So the neurons send signals to each other, and you can strengthen the signals between two populations of neurons so that when I say dog, you think cat, right? There's a natural association there. And that almost certainly means that when the dog related neurons, at least some of them are more active, it makes the cat related neurons a little bit more active automatically because there's a pathway, an automatic channel for signaling between them. Another thing that neurons do very well is learn from rewards and punishments. Now, in terms of your own behavior or the behavior of a dog or some other animal, you you know that if you touch the hot stove, you'll be less likely to do it again. And what neurons can do is promote a behavior and then get a signal back that says, that's bad, don't do that. Or that's great, keep doing that more. These are things where the cells are very well suited to doing that. But when it comes to putting concepts together arbitrarily on the fly, how neurons do that, we really don't know. And that's the challenge. This has been a problem in the philosophical literature for getting on half a century now. Yeah, that's right. The most famous idea in this area comes from Jerry Fodor, the idea that there's a language of thought. What Fodor essentially argued is that on some level, the brain must function like a computer and in a specific way, that it must have a language in which there are something like symbols that can be reused and moved around to form thoughts. So that when I say the dog chased the cat versus the cat chased the dog, those different symbols are getting moved around and arranged in different ways so that you have an understanding of that. And some people have said, yes, of course, that has to be right. Nothing else could work to explain all the things that humans can do with with ideas and with words. And other people have said, oh, I'm not so sure. When you look at the brain, it doesn't look like a silicon computer. And maybe there are other ways that brains can get this job done without having that kind of an architecture. And what I and my collaborator, Stephen Franklin, who's the the lead author on on our new paper, have shown is that We've provided some, I think, pretty compelling evidence that the brain does indeed function like a computer in this way at a high level, enabling us to understand things. Explain how your experiments worked. 
Okay, so it's a complicated problem. So we start out very simple. We have people in the brain scanner and we have them responding to sentences like the car hit the truck or the truck hit the car. We're looking for part of the brain that, that's not just responding to the concepts that are present, but that's sensitive to the way in which they're combined, right? And so we search around the brain for a region where the pattern of activity is different for those two things. And across many different subjects, we found a lot of different regions that seemed to show a response, but there was one place that pretty reliably across people showed a different response to things like the car hit the truck versus the truck hit the car. And this was in a part of the brain called the left mid superior temporal cortex, which is on the left side, kind of up around the top of the ear. And a critical thing about this is that we use sentences like the truck hit the car, but at the same time we use sentences like the car was hit by the truck. So it's not about the order of the words or the specific even words that are involved. It's about the underlying meaning. So we identified this region where there seems to be a difference. So if I say sentence one, Josh interviews Dave, and then I say Dave interviews Josh, and my brain is in the scanner, you'll see a particular area of my brain where there'll be particular activity. The patterns will be different between those two things. So it's not like there's a Dave interviews Josh part of the brain that lights up or vice versa, but we found a region where the pattern of activity, sort of the mosaic that you see when you look at the activity in different little cubes that we divide the brain up into, that pattern is different, yes. So you see different patterns if somebody hears the sentence, the truck hits the car or the car hits the truck. How do you know that's related to meaning? So one of the things we did is we use sentences that have different emotional value or effects depending on the order of the concepts. So in addition to using boring things like the car hit the truck and the truck hit the car, we use things like the baby kicked the grandfather versus the grandfather kicked the baby, which obviously feel very different. So what we found, is, as you might expect, is that when people respond to the grandfather kicked the baby, you see a response in an emotional part of the brain, in particular a part of the brain called the amygdala. And what we wanted to know is, is there a relationship between the patterns of activity that vary with the ordering of the concepts, with the propositions, and this amygdala response, this emotional response. And indeed there is. So when you see the pattern like the grandfather kicked the baby pattern, the more that pattern is instantiated in this part of the brain that we found that seems to be related to the meaning, the more of an amygdala response that you see, right? So it's as if when you really got it, you really feel it, right? And so that's consistent with the idea that this is really part of the pathway to understanding as opposed to just a place where words are being sort of registered in the ear or one level up where sort of arrangements of words are being registered. That's fascinating. And that's just one experiment. Right. So then the second experiment tackles the idea of how this actually works. And this is what really gets to the language of thought hypothesis. So what we showed in the first experiment is there's some difference between things like the truck hit the car and the car hit the truck. But those differences, they might not have any internal structure. So you could imagine just assigning kind of a neural serial number to the idea of car hitting truck and a different neural ser serial number associated with the truck hit the car. But those two serial numbers are just random. They have nothing to do with each other, right? But what the language of thought hypothesis says and what a lot of cognitive scientists have been saying is the only way you're going to be able to represent all these ideas is if you have a combinatorial process. If you have pieces where the pieces are identifiable and get reused like the letters of the alphabet, right, to form new things. And so what we did was we looked within this area and we said, okay, we're going to do a 
mix and match. So we've got a menu of nouns and a menu of verbs. So we've got like dog and cat and man and girl or something like that. And then we have chased and scratched and other verbs where you can have the same entities on both sides. So we have the man scratched the dog and the cat chased the girl, right? And we do all the different combinations. And then what we want to see is, is there a place in the brain, or not in the brain, but specifically in this region, where you can decode who's the agent, who is doing something? And is there a distinct place in this region where you can decode who the patient is? This is a technical term, but it's just who had something done to it. And are there other places where you can decode what the verb is? Was it chasing or was it scratching? And what we found is that indeed the answer seems to be yes. There's a little part of the left mid superior temporal cortex where you can decode who the agent is, who's doing something. But if you try to decode who had something done to it, the patient, then you don't get any effect, right? So it's as if there's a little data register there. It's like there's a little bucket that in goes whoever is doing something. And then right next door, there's another region where you can decode who the patient is, but not the agent. And so the idea is that when you hear the dog chase the cat, a representation of dog goes in the agent slot, and a representation of cat goes in the patient slot. And when you hear the cat chase the dog, a representation of cat goes in the agent slot, and a representation of dog goes in the patient slot. So it's like the little variables and values that you get in a computer program, right? And the idea is that if you want to represent a sentence like the dog chased the cat, you have a little spot that's going to be waiting for the answer to the question, who did it? Another spot that's rating to the answer to the question of what was done, what's the verb, what's the action, and another little spot that's answering the question, who had something done to it? And we found all three of these little spots in this general area. So the idea is that indeed, even though it's brain cells, even though it's neurons, it has this architecture that's like a computer, where you have these variables that can quickly get filled in with different values to construct a new thought on the fly. Now, we're not up to the world's tallest woman being serenaded by 30 pink elephants yet, that's more complicated than any structure we've investigated. But the idea is that that basic language of thought kind of structure seems to be there. You've done an investigation through language, but not all our thoughts are expressed through language. We can think something without articulating it. Are we to assume that this computer model also works with thought? So this is a big question, and we don't know the answer. And some people have said that all thinking worthy of being called thinking has to be based in language. Other people have said no. One reason for thinking no is if you look at other animals that don't have anything like human language, it seems like they do some pretty sophisticated thinking, right? So a chimpanzee can look at two other chimps fighting and say, okay, chimp A defeated chimp B, or chimp B defeated chimp A. They clearly record that kind of information, and they're not doing it with anything like human language. So it's an interesting open question is there a language of thought, perhaps one that we even share with our nearest living relatives, and what we think of as language is really just an expression of that? Or is it that thinking, at least what we think of as thinking, thinking with a capital T, really is fundamentally linguistic? We don't really know. But one of the exciting things about this research program is that it points a way towards answering that question. That is to say, if we can characterize the thought system in humans and figure out which aspects are specifically linguistic and which ones are not, then we can look in other animals, chimpanzees, monkeys, etc., and say, okay, do they have all the thought stuff minus the language? You know, do they have these combinatorial thoughts the way 
way we do, but they just don't have a way of expressing it to us at least? Or is it that you need to have language in order to structure your thoughts in a way that would make them worthy of being called thoughts? We don't know. But you know, now we can start asking these questions. And one of the things on our immediate to-do list is to do these kinds of experiments with stimuli that aren't words, that aren't sentences, but things like pictures as well. For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us.